Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here this morning. You may have noticed when you walked in the building today, it felt a little bit warmer. Anybody notice that? It is, uh, it is not because we turned the thermostat up. It's because Wally is back. <laughs> um, some of you thought he had lost his way with Jesus. Others of you thought we had fired him. He's just been sick. He's been recovering for a month now from surgery, and he's better. He's not 100%. So I have a couple of requests to ask of you this morning. One is if you are sick, if you think you're getting sick, if you think you might be sick somewhere in the next six weeks, just don't go near him. He's still fragile. That's not a word we often use with Wally, but he's still fragile. And if you hug him, don't squeeze him. He'll pop. <laughs> okay? And then we'll lose him for another month. So I'm just thrilled that Wally's back. Uh, and I know how much you guys love him. I know what a place he's carved out in this church. Uh, his presence and his personality and his care because every conversation I've had for the last month on the phone or in person through the week or on Sunday has been started with, how's Wally doing? So we're just grateful you're back, my friend. So we'll keep praying for you. Um, This morning we're going to wrap up, as Daniel said, our eight-week series we've been in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And The central theme that runs through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where this is found, is this idea that Jesus came to help us live a makarios life. That's the Greek word. It's often translated in the scripture as blessed, but that really doesn't capture the full extent. And Darren said the first Sunday it helps, but it's still not perfect to say it just means extremely blessed or successful, but It really is the secret to life that Jesus gives us in these three chapters. There is a thread of that that runs not just through the Sermon on the Mount, but through all four Gospels in the New Testament. John 10.10 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It has that thread. Jesus came and his purpose was to give us a rich and satisfying life. That's makarios. That's what we've been looking at. As I look back through our journey over the last eight weeks, I realize how simple and how clear and yet how profound Jesus' teaching is in this passage. A Macario's life doesn't require sensational exhibitions of spiritual power from us. It's not that it will become some kind of a superpower we always wished we'd had. Instead, Jesus just calls us to follow him along a simple, humble path. In this message, if you read it for yourselves, you'll find that Jesus calls us to embrace our spiritual poverty, which will then cause us to hunger for God's righteousness. He calls us to have a deep trust in God, that God will supply even our most basic needs in life of food and clothing and shelter. We learned in this series, we've learned that a Macario's life will also have a profound impact on how we relate to to people, all people. We'll begin to show mercy to them when our heart cries out for revenge or at the very least, justice. We keep our anger and our sexual impulses, all those strong emotions and sensations we have, we keep them in check. We speak honest words to each other and then have the courage to stand behind the honest words we've spoken. Learn to love our enemies. And even to love those unlikable, weird people who seem to find their way to hang around us. You got any of those in your life? Oh, good. You sent them all to me. Thanks. 
Maybe I am that unlikable, weird person. (laughs) That's why you didn't say anything. We learn to love our enemies. And Jesus calls us overall to break the cycle of hatred and judgment that's so prevalent in our world. That's quite a list, right? It's an easy list of things to do, really, until you actually try to do it and live it out every single day. I mean, there's at least one item in that list that I need to work on. I know that. Connie says there's more, but I'm just sticking with that one. And I'm guessing there's at least one in your life that you need to work on too. And I think the honest question we're left with at the end of studying through the Sermon on the Mount is the same question that people had when they listened to it that day. What do I do if I see this vision of a Macario's life? If I understand what it is, what do I do if I measure my life against that and I find out I'm not here, I'm here? I've got a long way to go. What do I do? How do I fix that? And how do I begin to pursue the rich and satisfying life that Jesus promised? It is not so much with the Sermon on the Mount that it was an extremely long message. It, we could read it on a Sunday morning and it would fill the same amount of time that a normal message fills. It wasn't the length of the message, it was the content that was so challenging, I think, for Jesus' audience that day. And I realized for the first time in my life, I realized reading through the last part of chapter 7 of Matthew's gospel, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that what Jesus actually did when he got to this point was he began to wrap up with some summary statements about what all of this body of teaching was about. Uh, he, he started to help them understand, here's what you do if you want to make wise decisions in your life. Here's what you do if you want to live this Macarius life. And so he gives four very striking images in Matthew seven thirteen through 27 that help us understand exactly what life in Christ is going to demand from us. And so we're going to look at those this morning, and I'm going to ask you three key questions as we finish each section of images, and they're very pointed, very personal. We're not going to embarrass you and ask you to raise your hand or come forward or anything this morning, but I do want you to think about these questions. So he starts off with his first illustration, and it gets rough right at the start. I mean, they've been listening for about 25 minutes, and Jesus says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life, it's very narrow. And the road, it's difficult. And only a few ever find it. You ever felt pressured by a group to do something? Say something? I mean, we all got it, you know, in in middle school, high school, college, but I'm convinced peer pressure never goes away. It's always a part of our life. And depending on the situation, the pressure to conform can be intense. The path of Jesus lays out a difficult choice in life. Will we be content to follow the herd, stay with the pack, go with the crowd? Or can we see the value in the tougher path of choosing to follow Jesus? Not everybody's willing to make that choice. Jesus says it clearly. The path to a Macarius life begins with a commitment that you're actually going to follow Jesus. I, uh, a few weeks ago, heard the name Colin O'Brady for the very first time. And it's this man whose picture is on the screen. And I, as I've dug into his story 
he has really begun for me to redefine what the word commitment is all about. About 10 years ago, he was goofing around with some friends. They were on a holiday in Thailand, and they started daring each other to do stupid stuff, you know, as um, boys, you know, between the ages of 13 and death usually do. Um, and so he started jumping rope, like not a, not a super challenging thing. I mean, it's, you, you mess up, it's no big deal, except this rope had been soaked in kerosene. This rope was lit on fire. Now, any parent in the room is instantly going, well, this is not going to end well, and it didn't. His feet got tangled in the rope as he was jumping. It caught his clothing on fire, and the net effect was he ended up with burns over 25% of his body and third-degree burns over almost all the surface skin on his legs and feet. The doctors treated him, and he would live, but he'd never walk normally again. That was their assessment. Except Colin refused to accept that assessment. And so he committed to the hard work of rehab, and he went on to fully recover. And as if to put an exclamation point on his recovery, he signed up for a triathlon, and he finished it. And not just that one, but he finished over the next couple of years a total of 50 triathlons. It's pretty impressive. And he gave up triathlons, started speaking to kids in elementary schools about setting big goals, doing things that people around you may think are impossible or crazy, but set big goals. And in the process, in front of kids, he committed to doing the Explorer's Grand Slam. Anybody know what that is? It's, I didn't either. The Explorer's Grand Slam involves summiting the seven tallest mountains in the world, which are on seven different continents. And as if that's not enough, you then also have to ski into and find the exact center of the South Pole and the North Pole. That's the Grand Slam. So Colin O'Brady set out to do that, but he wasn't satisfied to just do it. He wanted to beat the world record which was those nine journeys were completed in 192 days. He didn't just beat the record. He blew the record away, completing it in 139 days. Crazy. I found out about him a few weeks ago when I heard about this crazy young man who was attempting to cross Antarctica. Uh, And he began that expedition on November 3rd. His goal is to cross Antarctica solo and unaided. No packs or caches of food stored along the way. No kites that take advantage of the wind in Antarctica and help speed him along in that journey. And every study that I read about this, researching this task and how difficult it was, says it's physically impossible to cross Antarctica unaided, to pull enough food with you, enough, literally enough calories on those sleds for you to survive the entire journey. He wants to cross, so his his conclusion was, well, then you just do it in less days, right? So his, his goal is to cross Antarctica in 70 days. It is a 1,000 mile journey. And in order to make it solo and unaided, he's pulling 400 pounds of supplies behind him. He's 15 days in as of this morning, and he's averaging about two miles an hour, which is right on target. And he's updating everyone daily on Twitter. (laughs) 
Now, it's just a great time to be alive, isn't it? When you can be crossing Antarctica on skis and still be connected to Twitter. So if you want to follow him, you can look up Colin O'Brady on Twitter. I am convinced as I study his story, he's going to make it. And I am convinced that we as human beings severely underestimate what we can actually accomplish if we just commit. And that actually is the point that Jesus is making here. Everybody wants a Macarius life when they hear about it. Everybody wants to be supremely blessed. The question is, are we willing to do the work it takes to get there? Because following Jesus involves some tough choices. Following Jesus isn't always the easiest road. We will never drift into deeper levels of commitment to Jesus. It doesn't just sort of happen to us as we go with the flow. Yes, the spiritual path of following Jesus begins with love and mercy and grace and forgiveness, but that doesn't make the rest of the journey easy. It requires a wholehearted commitment to following him every step, every day, to the best of our ability. A number of years ago, I fell in love with some of the phrases from the 12-step movement, and one of them that stuck with me is, half-hearted measures availed us nothing. It's true. You want to break an addiction? You won't get there if you're half-hearted. You won't get there with half-hearted attempts. We can't follow Jesus with half-hearted efforts either. And so here's the question from this first image Jesus gives us. How badly do we really want the Macarius life that Jesus is offering? Is there a hunger in your soul? Is there a burning in your heart to pursue that? Are you committed to it? The second image that Jesus uses as he's summarizing the Sermon on the Mount comes from agriculture. And he says, essentially, it's not really tough to tell a healthy tree from an unhealthy tree. The easiest way is just to examine the fruit they produce. A healthy tree is going to produce beautiful fruit that tastes good. You're going to enjoy that labor of that tree. An unhealthy tree, if it manages to produce fruit, it's not going to be fit to eat. And Jesus then applies that to the Makarios life and says, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. That simple idea is laced all the way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He makes it clear that his followers are called to live a noticeably different life than other people. We're held to a higher standard of conduct. We're ultimately held to the standard of love and selflessness that Jesus showed when he went to the cross willingly to die for our sins. And that means ultimately that our commitment to a Makarios life comes down to simple everyday choices, dozens of them that we have to make where we're deciding, will I follow Jesus or won't I? And you can tell a lot about the people around you by observing their actions. In these three chapters in Matthew, Jesus addresses so many places where we get stuck in this life, so many places where we struggle as we try to live out that commitment to Jesus. How do we handle ourselves when we're in situations where emotions begin to escalate? It's a really good question heading into the holiday season where there's going to be a lot of forced proximity to family we're not fond of. Maybe I'm just projecting my own stuff to you. What do you do? What do you do when family flare-ups happen? 
What do you do with the anger? Do you let it lead you to unhealthy, unloving words and actions? Are we the kind of people who seek revenge or offer forgiveness when we feel wronged? Do we build relationships that are filled with trust and respect, especially with persons of the opposite sex? Do we accept love? Do we accept and love people or do we judge them? And what do we do inevitably when a relationship breaks down? Jesus talks about all of this in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a lot. And then he gets really personal about it when he talks about how we have a tendency as human beings to get tangled up and get sideways in our commitment to God when it comes to the stuff of life. Painfully, in chapter 5, he says, look, you can't serve God and be enslaved to money. That's tough. Because it really doesn't matter how much money you have, you can be enslaved to it. You can be broke, poor, nothing in your bank accounts and be enslaved to money. Or you can be set for life and still be enslaved to it. Are we generous or stingy with what God's given us? With our money, with our possessions, with all we have and all that we are. So many of Jesus' teachings are commands for his followers to do better, to rise above the society around us and what they allow and what society expects. So the question here is, what practical impact does Jesus' teaching have on our lives? How does it fundamentally change how your life works, how you do your daily work, how you relate with friends and family and strangers? How is it changing our attitudes and our actions towards the world's greatest problems. In the same way, Jesus says that you can tell a tree by the fruit it produces, you can identify the health or the unhealthiness of someone's soul by the actions in their lives. The final two images Jesus teaches essentially carry the same idea. And he begins to warn the audience about people who will listen to his teaching and simply think, those are great words. Those are inspiring words. They will enjoy the talk, but not really put the stuff into practice in their life. We might not make or follow through on any commitments to Jesus. Jesus says really clearly, not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On Judgment Day, Jesus says, a lot of people are going to look at him and say, Lord, I mean, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. And Jesus' reply is painful when he says, but I never knew you. I never knew you. So get away from me, you who break God's laws. Jesus is really clear. It's not enough to just tack on some good works onto our life and think God is going to be pleased with us and let us into heaven. People in Jesus' talk, these verses, did some pretty amazing things in their life, right? They taught people about the ways of God. You'd think that would get you into heaven. They exercised demons. That's a place I don't think any of us want to go. That's an incredible work for God. They did miracles. They healed the sick. They did great things in their life. 
Some pretty weighty, heavy spiritual stuff. But how does Jesus respond to their efforts to work hard for him, to do a lot for him? He says, I never knew you. You didn't walk with me. You never learned from me. You didn't take my principles in and apply them to your life. And as if to remove any doubt about what he's saying, Jesus then gives one more illustration and says, anybody who listens to my teaching and follows it, follows it, is wise. They're like a person who builds their house on solid rock. And though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anybody who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. And when the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it'll collapse with a mighty crash. That distinction, wise and foolish in Scripture, is not about intelligence. It's about spiritual condition. Anytime Jesus uses those words, he's talking about the condition of your soul and your relationship with him. And he says, look, good words and grand actions aren't enough. They won't help us live a Macarius life, and in the end, they won't save us. The foundation of a Macarius life has to be built on obedience to Jesus. For the first 30 or so years of his life, Jesus would have watched and worked right alongside his earthly father, Joseph, who was a carpenter, if you remember the Christmas story. And let's be clear about what that meant. Joseph wasn't just a master woodworker. He didn't spend his days making cheese boards and wine toppers to sell at the Nazareth craft fair, right? He was a carpenter. He built homes. He built village structures. He did everything as a carpenter from felling the tree to the finish work. And Jesus worked alongside him probably for 15 to 20 years of his life. And so he knew firsthand how risky it would be to build a house on shifting and eroding sand. In fact, where Jesus grew up, carpenters would sometimes have to dig by hand down 10 feet through sand to get to solid rock to rest a building's foundation on. So this is a very personal image that Jesus uses, one from his life's journey as he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, look, if you build on a a solid foundation, you will be fine no matter what storms of life come. And in fact, Jesus says there's only one foundation that will hold up. There's only one foundation that won't erode when the good times of life cause us to forget about God. Anyone who listens to my teaching, Jesus says, and follows it is wise. Obedience is what really matters. A lot of people will hear good information about Jesus. In fact, Matthew closes out the Sermon on the Mount by saying people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. A lot of people are amazed at his teaching but there are very few that actually do the hard work to put it into practice in their life. So let me ask you one last question, probably the most important of the three. What are you building your life on? Not in theory. 
If you look at the everyday decisions that you make, deep down, what guides those decisions? What's shaping your character? What's the bedrock that your values, that you live your life by, are built on? Wise people will follow Jesus' words and let them dig into the depths of their soul. Wise people will pray prayers like the psalmist did when he said, Search me, know me, God, and know my heart, and see if there's any wicked way in me. With four images, Jesus emphasizes the same theme. Drives the same point home for you and me. You have to decide for me or against me. You have to decide to be with me or apart from me. You have to decide, are you going to be my apprentice or someone else's? And that's the decision that stands in front of us today. 2,000 years later. Jesus wants every one of us to listen to his teaching. To seriously consider his claims to be the son of God. And ultimately, he wants us to decide. Will we accept not just his grace and forgiveness, but will we also accept his forgiveness and leadership in our lives? The Macarius life is waiting for anyone who's brave enough to come out of the crowd. Waiting for anyone who's brave enough to choose the tougher path and brave enough to completely follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, help us to have that courage. Help us to be brave. Help us, God, to sort through and make a wholehearted commitment to you and to the words and teaching of Jesus and to live every day as best we can following him. In Christ's name we pray.